This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is Sunday, February the 26th, 2023. Once again, thanks for joining with me. Today, we are entering chapter three of Colossians, and I want to start with this question. Guys, what just is the goal of faith? Of course, you may say, well, that's this this huge question. I mean, faith, faith is how we believe. Faith is how we move beyond the very constraining limits of this finite and physical world and enter into the realm of spirit, right? The spirit, the realm of God, right? Faith is how we know God. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, the author gets at this when they write, Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. For this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. And of course the chapter goes on there for all of chapter 11. Right? It is by faith that we believe. Okay, So, as people of faith in God. So I believe in God. We believe. I have faith, right? As people who have faith, what is the goal of our faith now in the reality of daily life, right? What is the purpose of faith in our relationship with God? And this is actually a really important question because, and I realize that I'm really generalizing here, but friends, I'm going to assert that there are two big ways we think about faith. And as we look across Christian culture, one is much more prevalent than the other. And the first, and this is the the far more common perspective, you know, if you look at Christian movies, music, books, many, many, many sermons that are out there, it's the idea that faith is the means by which we move God to action, right? We may point to Scripture. We may think of what Jesus said in Mark 11. Mark 11, 22, going on from there a bit, Jesus said, Have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, right? Have faith that you have received it, and it will be yours. Okay. Guys, that passage, and others like it in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels specifically, these are highly prone to misinterpretation. It's extremely important for us to see that there is context here that has to be taken into account. Taken into account. For example, immediately following this, Jesus went on and said, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Okay, would we say then that God's forgiveness of our sin is is contingent, or at least in correlation, to the extent that we forgive other people's sin? Or is there, again, an important context, a deeper meaning that Jesus is pointing to, that we must understand in the light of the rest of the New Testament's teaching about forgiveness? Well, the answer to that is yes. And also, friends, this demonstrates why it's not helpful to say things like, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Because what the Bible says about something may be quite different from what it seems to say 
in one specific passage translated across 2,000 years from Greek to Latin to English. So, back to faith. While most people don't see God as a candy machine, right? If I just believe enough, God will give me that new truck. It is very common for us to think that God's provision is somehow contingent upon the level of our faith. Now, as I'm not talking about when we sincerely may say, God, I recognize that I don't have control here. I have influence. I have a role. But I don't have control. And I'm trusting you with the outcome. Friends, that is deep water faith, actually. And it's a powerful source of peace. But what we so often hear is the idea that by our faith, we can move God to manage or change our outcomes in a way according to our desires or our prayers. And then... If God doesn't, air quotes, come through in the needs or desires we bring before him, well, then perhaps it's because we did waver in our faith, or we had insufficient faith, or we didn't pray enough, or there weren't enough people praying often enough, or we just didn't do it right. And then we turn on our Christian radio station, perhaps go to a prayer service, or we hear someone testify to how when they prayed for a specific need, for a a specific circumstance, they had faith and God did come through. God did meet the need. He did heal their child. So God is good and they are blessed. And my friends, I want to tell you, The innumerable people who were caught in chronic struggle, who didn't, whose child was not saved, right, who have experienced years of ongoing affliction that just doesn't stop, they hear this and it's crushing. Oh, to be one of the privileged few who are truly blessed by God because it certainly isn't me. And church, I want to tell you that from my many years of experience as a pastor, people are there all the time. And when this is where somebody is, listen, somebody listen to this right now. This may be where you are, right? When it seems like God doesn't come through in response to our faith, as we're constantly taught that he will from VBS all up, there are two general responses that we'll have. And one, the first is just to blame God, is to get angry at God. We're confused and disillusioned, right? God doesn't hear me. God doesn't, God just must not care. God is arbitrary because he answered another prayer but ignored mine. So God must not be good. Or if our faith doesn't allow us to go there to place blame on God, well, what do we do? We place the blame on ourselves. I wasn't good enough. I lacked faith. You know, James said the prayer of a righteous person availeth much, right? That's a good King James. So I must not be righteous enough for God to care, for God to respond. I mean, maybe if I'd used anointing oil when we prayed, maybe then God would have heard. And it goes on and on and on. And my friends, this leads to bondage, spiritual despair, and when people are told as much by, parent, by preachers and teachers or even well-meaning friends, it's tantamount to spiritual abuse. But in response, it's the church. 
we come up with all sorts of theological reasons, right? We could just go to great gymnastics on this to explain why God answers some prayers and not others, right? Why God is moved by some people's faith, but not other people's faith. Why God has blessed some much more than others. And we call these explanations, the theological term for these, are theodicies. And they've been debated and around for the entire history of the church. But in the midst of our truly great crises, all those explanations, all of our doctrinal formulas just come crashing down. As so many are then left with only one question, what does faith matter? What does it do? I don't understand. And my friends, this happens all the time. But what if, what if faith isn't primarily about God, about moving God to act in a certain way? What if faith isn't about what we want God to do, but in the midst of life as it really is, that faith is about understanding, believing, and experiencing the goodness of what God has already done? done. Friends, that is the great message. That is the hope that I've struggled to teach over these past 20 years. It is the hope of our union with Christ, our identity in Christ, the reality of who we are and what is now true of us in Christ, and what it looks like for the nature and the character of Christ to increasingly become the nature and character of you and me and how we live because Christ is in us, we are in Christ, and His life is now our life. One of my favorite statements of this truth that I've shared many times in the past is from a self-published commentary on Romans 5-8 through 8, um, by a pastor from an inner city church in Oak Cliff, Texas, a gentleman who's now passed away by the name of David Kirkendall, and the name of his little book is Here's Life. And in the introduction, he says this, there are things that are true of us in Christ that we will not experience as truth, right, as our reality until we believe that they are true and choose to live in the good of that truth. My friends, this is the understanding of faith. This is the lens that Paul gives to us in Colossians as he cries out, look, hear, See what God has done through Christ and how it has set you free from the old way of religious law and legalism and brought you into an entirely new way of living with an entirely new source of life. You know, over the past two Sundays, we've heard Paul proclaim, You died with Christ. And now, as we enter chapter 3, Paul exclaims, And you have been raised with Christ. So let's go to the text, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it in its entirety first. And Paul says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. By the way, when you see a phrase like since then, you need to go back and read what comes before this, which in this case is really all of chapter 2, but specifically the second half of Colossians chapter 2. Anyway, since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Oh, my friends, this is profound, but at least on first read, it can also sound somewhat abstract. Right? I'm raised? I don't feel raised. <laughs> what does this even mean? Now, here's the deal. What Paul says here is actually quite simple and straightforward. It's also incredibly practical, and it is a perspective of faith. So let's walk through it. Right off the top, Paul says, first one, chapter three. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. All right, guys, we tend to think of resurrection, right? Not Jesus' resurrection, but our resurrection as a future event, something that will happen when Christ returns. And we read 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will be raised first, okay? But here, Paul says that the believer has already been raised with Christ. Not only that, in a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 2, we are told that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So God has raised us up with Christ and he has seated us with Christ in heaven, right? Completed tense, something that's already done. You know, but we say, one day I'll go to heaven when I die. But God here says, no. You're already there. In fact, I see you right there. Three rows back, second seat on the left. There you are. So what does this mean? Well, there are many implications, many important things we can discuss here. But simply put, our friends, this means, among many things, that God's work to redeem us, to forgive us, to make us his own, and make us new, holy, and dearly loved, that work is complete. In our spirit, who we truly are, we are the righteousness of Christ. We are in union with Christ, and nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God. And so we don't have to stress and get caught up in all sorts of legalistic activity, thinking that God's acceptance, his presence, and his goodness to us is based upon our religious performance or deservedness. And because this is true, because we are with Christ and Christ is with us, in us, this means that there is never a moment of life, no matter how challenging, exhausting, or confusing life may be, there is never a moment when we are separate from the presence, the acceptance, and the power of Christ's nature within us. You know, in all sincerity, we may say, Lord, you are here with me in this circumstance. So, please change it. But the Holy Spirit, working in union with our spirit, gently redirects us with the voice of Christ saying, Oh, my child, your hope and my purpose for you is not contingent upon what happens in this part of your story. Rather, I am here so that right now, as you deal with and seek to influence what's going on in your story, you will do so with me, with my strength, my patience, and my courage. And you will express my kindness and my compassion and acceptance and love. And you will experience my hope, my peace, and even my joy. Church, hear me. Because we have been raised with Christ, right, by faith, we can rest in the great hope of Jesus' last words before his ascension that we see in Matthew. 
Behold, I am, what did Jesus say there? Behold, I am with you. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And my friends, throughout the New Testament, we hear the writers telling us, this is our truth. This is who we are. And to experience the power and goodness of this truth is a matter of setting and fixing. Setting and fixing. Paul goes on and exhorts us, set your heart, set your mind, fix your eyes on the goodness of this truth. Again, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, we read, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, as we see this principle, this truth, many places in the, in, in the New Testament, a few examples, 2 Corinthians 4.18, so we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so that's where we fix our eyes. That's where we set our mind. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, of course, I, I just love to quote this passage because it's so beautiful and so powerful, where the writer says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right, that's all chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. For he is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then the writer says, so consider him. All right, fix your eyes upon him. Set your mind upon him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. As in Colossians 3 here, we read, Paul says, set your heart on things above and also set your mind on things above. But this is subtle, but what Paul is describing here is all of who we are. In our heart, right, our deepest seat of our convictions, our values, how we feel about things, our gut, in our heart, believe that Christ is with you, that he has work in you and through you, and be consciously surrendered to the nature and character of Christ and that part of who you are that's so fundamental to who we are. And in our mind, how you think, what you think about, right? What do you think about things, your reasoning, your worldview, right? How you deal with your biases, your self-awareness of what your mind is even up to in all of this. Believe that Christ is with you, at work in you and through you, and be consciously surrendered to the nature and the character of Christ. In all of who we are, how we think, how we feel, and how we act, in our mind, our will, and our emotions, the scripture is telling us, choose to place Christ, his nature and his purposes at our center. Choose for the hope and the goodness of Jesus to be the lens through which we see and engage with our world. So here's the question. In the midst of your story, whatever this, maybe just this week may hold, what does it look like for you to set your mind to set your heart on Christ, on things above, the truth and the goodness of God. 
My friends, this is a choice of faith, and it doesn't happen by accident. And now going on to drive his point home, Paul reminds us why we are free to make that choice, to set our mind upon Christ, because the old person we used to be who didn't have the ability to make that choice, that person died. You died, Paul says. Verse 3, for you died. All right, let me just stop here. Because I want to remind us what this means, because we've talked about it over the last several weeks. You know, just like the truth that we've been raised with Christ, we see throughout the New Testament the freedom that we died with Christ. Right? That's what we see proclaimed in Galatians 2.20. In Romans chapter 6, this is what we read. Paul says, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, right? put out of power, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has, what, died, has been set free from sin. And then in verse 8, he says, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe also that we live with him. Now, guys, a few weeks ago, we talked about this concept of this thing called our flesh. I think this, this was two or three weeks ago. If you missed this, you need to go back and listen to it because it's so important. But our flesh, again, it's the human condition, the strategy of life rooted in self that is our only option of living apart from Christ, right? Our flesh is who we were. And when Scripture says that we died with Christ, it means that old version of us that was helplessly addicted and bound up to self and the weakness of the human condition, that person has been killed. That person was stripped of their power to define us and control us. But if you heard that sermon, you remember what we talked about next, right? We, we launched into zombie theology because the remnant of that old person, just like a zombie, continually follows us around trying to convince us that it is still who we are. And so here Paul reminds the church and he reminds us, listen, you died. So when you hear that lying voice of your old self trying to deceive you, remember, You've been raised, and your truth is now the hope and the goodness and the character of Jesus. So when I hear my brain or emotion saying, I am so angry, I'm bitter, I'm defeated, or even I'm worthless, I can say, no, that is not who I am, for that part of me is dead and no matter how alive and real it feels right now in this moment, for I am choosing to set my mind and my heart upon what Christ says is true of me, the reality of my identity of who I am in Jesus. Because, my friends, Christ's truth right now, it may not change the external details of our experience, but internally, he is a bringer of peace and trust and value, forgiveness, and kindness. Right? Internally, Christ is bringing the part of his nature that you and I most need right now in the midst of our situation, whatever it may be. And now, in verse 3, it's going on here, Paul says something really interesting. He says, For you died, 
and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Our life is hidden with Christ. You know, think of that this way. You know, if you've ever looked into purchasing camouflaged clothing for hunting, a lot of people up here in Eagle County have done that. Right? If you've ever done this, or even just out of curiosity, you've probably seen an image like this. Right? It's a picture of just some trees and bushes, right? a landscape. But if you look really close, after a moment, you start to see that there's actually a person, a hunter, hidden right there in the middle, right there in plain sight. And you didn't initially see the hunter because they were indistinguishable from their surroundings. My friends, when we are living in the good of our union with Christ, our lives will look, this is this picture that Paul gives us, our lives will look so much like Jesus that you wouldn't even be able to tell us apart. We are hidden in Christ. Or, really better put to what, how Paul says it here in the text, Christ is hidden in us. For this is where he goes next. Verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, when Christ appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, friends, in one way, when our lives, when our lives express the goodness, the nature, and the love of Jesus, that'll be noticed, right? That will distinguish us from the surrounding brokenness of our world. Now, that's why Peter would say, be ready to give an answer when people ask you about the reason for your hope. Because that hope that flows from Christ is not the norm, and it will be seen. But from another perspective, and I want to tell you a freeing and peace-bringing perspective, guys, we never have to force this. You see, the false teachers in Colossae were pushing a kind of religion that focused on external glory. Right? Look at me. Look at how religious I am. Look at how spiritual I am. Look at the glory of me. And Paul responds. He says, no, no, disciple, hidden within you is a hope, a certainty, and a source of life that often will be invisible to the world around you. For it is humble. It doesn't seek recognition. It simply lives quietly, lovingly, in honestly displaying its authentic, transforming power through your daily life. And one day, when Christ does return and he appears in all of his glory, then on that day, the glory residing in you will also be fully revealed. But until then, remember, by faith, set your heart and your mind on the miraculous truth that you have been raised with Christ, and his life is your life. And he will bring you real life, the life of God in the midst of life as it really is. Okay, friends, I want to end with this. All the way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40. You know, Isaiah 40 is a beautiful example of God's presence and provision to the people of Israel in the midst of their own rebellion and suffering, pointing toward what God would accomplish and make possible through Jesus Christ. You know, if you read the entire chapter of Isaiah 40, you'll hear the prophet comforting Israel in her distress, saying, Listen, don't you realize who God is? 
Have you no concept of God's sovereignty, his power, and how small you are next to him? You're, you're, you're just like a grasshopper upon the earth. But then Isaiah proclaims, And this God of power, this sovereign God, the God of the universe, his desire and his purpose is to give his life to you. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause is disregarded by God? All right, so, so evidently, that's what the people of Israel were saying, right? They're complaining to God. They're saying, God, do you not even care about us anymore? Are we hidden from you? What's going on? My cause is, dis God has disregarded us. And the prophet says, do you not know? Have you not even heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. For he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Got to stop here. The word renew there, renew their strength, it can be translated. This was pointed out by a ministry called Exchange Life Ministries that really mentored me for a lot of my, in, in a lot of my spiritual growth. But the concept there of renewing our strength can also be understood in terms of exchanging our strength. For those who hope in the Lord will exchange their strength. Right, the, <laughs> Our weakness, our brokenness, giving that to God. And in return, God gives us his strength and his life. And because of that, the prophet ends this, this chapter by saying, So they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And they will walk and not be faint. Friends, Pay attention to that last refrain there. For here God reveals the power of his presence and the fullness and breadth of life's experience. Because of the life and the goodness of God, right now in the New Testament, this side of the cross, Christ dwelling in us, there will be times when we experience the heights of the goodness of life. And we will appreciate the majesty and the goodness of God from a perspective like only an eagle could have when he is soaring in flight. There are times that life can be like this. But also, there are times when life is just on the run, right? when it's like a marathon, just unceasing. The issues, the questions, and the work just keeps coming, and it just doesn't stop. And yet... In the midst of the ongoing marathon, the race, the running of life, we won't grow weary. We won't grow weary when we trust in the Lord and exchange our strength for God's strength. And then, my friends, there are times that all we can do is just walk, stumble along, one step at a time, getting through this moment, this struggle, and then all we can do is just take the next step. There are times of life when we are tempted to give up, right? when we feel like we're just about to collapse. And yet, and yet, 
even in those times of life, in these times of life, we will not faint. Why? Not because our faith convinces God to change the nature of our circumstance, but because the life of God within us changes our nature within our circumstance. And that makes all the difference. Believer, you died with Christ, and the old has gone. You have been raised with Christ, and the new life, your new life, has come. This new life, in a sense, is hidden. The world cannot see it, although many times they will notice the result of it. And so we live humbly, thankfully, with the inner power, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, being renewed internally day by day as we are transformed by our faith in Christ, who is our life. My friends, do we believe it? May it be said of us. Church, thank you for joining me today. I pray you have a wonderful week, and I'll see you back here next Sunday as we continue on in Colossians chapter 3.